This is an interview with Michael Flannery recorded on January 14, 1991 at his home in Jackson Heights. My name is Jane Muller and I am the interviewer. This is tape number one. Michael Flannery was a legend to Irish Republicans in the United States because of stories about fighting the British in the Irish War of Independence. Stories like this. You travel through the country, mostly on foot. So you'd set up an ambush, you'd just put mines in the road, and uh, you lay an ambush behind the walls or the hedges. And when they came along, you just pressed a button, and the mines blew the armor car. It was the only way we could attack the armor car, was to blow them up and turn them over. And then the fight started, and uh, you killed them until they surrendered. In these tapes, he describes his teenage days as an IRA volunteer. He joined shortly after the failed 1916 rebellion and fought in the guerrilla war that brought about the partition of Ireland and eventually led to the creation of the Republic of Ireland in the South. It's probably the most romanticized period of the IRA. Flannery was young at the time and was only a frontline soldier, but he was practiced in the art of guerrilla warfare and was a member of a flying column the infamous fighting unit that would hit British convoys and then disappear into the hillsides. He'd lived the life of an Irish revolutionary. When he came to the United States, this background made him famous in some Irish-American communities. And he'd flex this status and his connections to the movement back home as one of the founders of the Irish Northern Aid Committee. By the time the trouble started, he was already in his 60s, and he'd recently retired from a job at a life insurance company. But he became the most identifiable figure of Irish Northern Aid. This was in part because he stood out in a crowd. He was tall and thin and wore three-piece suits. His hairstyle was unique. He'd sort of oil it up and swirl it around into a flat spiral on the top of his head. It was something even FBI agents remembered about him. But he was also remembered for his attitude toward violence. The sword is the only means of getting peace and freedom, liberty, justice and truth, then I say it has to be the sword. Even in his 70s, he was committed to the provisional IRA strategy of armed struggle. And if Norade was their consulate in the United States, Michael Flannery was the ambassador. This is West Belfast, in many ways a South Bronx lookalike. You could say Michael Flannery's heart lives here, in the crumbling and burned-out brick of this Catholic ghetto. Here, too, resides the soul of the IRA. This podcast is called Foreign Agent, and my name is Nate Levy. This is episode two. Michael Flannery's whole life traces the modern incarnation of the Irish Republican tradition. And for him, it culminated with the Irish Northern Aid Committee. But to make sense of how he got there, in this episode, we'll spend some time exploring the roots of colonialism in Ireland, resistance to the British, and Irish immigration to the United States. We'll also discuss how the Irish became white in America, and how that, at times, put them at odds with the civil rights movement in Northern Ireland. It was a movement that ultimately ended in tragedy on Bloody Sunday in 1972. Michael Flannery can help guide us through all of that. What year were you born again? 1902. 1902. And there were seven children. I was the fifth. And that, were they all boys before you? Or? There were three boys, and then girl, and then I came into the picture. Michael Flannery was born into a sleepy farming community in a rural town called Nakshagauna. If you're imagining rolling green hills, small farmhouses and narrow country roads, you've got it. This pastoral corner of Ireland is associated with fairies, horses, and Irish republicanism. Michael's father died when he was nine, and he seems to have been somewhat of a loner among his siblings. In his memoir, he says that his mother felt like he was not, quote, built for the farm, an opinion shared by his older brothers. His real love was for stories, at first just listening to them on the radio, or hearing them from his neighbors who dropped by. 
Later on, he'd find them in newspapers and books. And he has special fondness for stories about the failed uprising of a group called the Fenians in 1867. We'll hear more about them in a bonus episode that's coming soon. But between 1905 and 1907, in the earliest years of his life, before he was even in school, a group of Irish nationalists were building a new organization called Sinn Féin. You've probably heard of it maybe along with the phrase, the political wing of the IRA. Today, Sinn Féin is a modern political party that fields candidates in the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. In the last episode, we heard about their recent success in the National Assembly election in Northern Ireland. But at the beginning, Sinn Féin wasn't exactly a political party. It was really a merger of other existing nationalist organizations, and the people who joined it represented a spectrum of political beliefs. It was a pretty broad church. There were people who wanted Ireland to have total independence from the United Kingdom. There were people who wanted a devolved government, but to remain within the UK. There were those who wanted to remain subjects of the British monarchy, and those who wanted to blow it up. Sinn Féin were opposed by unionists, people who wanted to remain wholly within the United Kingdom. And in response to a proposed home rule law that would grant Ireland some autonomy, unionists formed a militia. It was called the Ulster Volunteers, named after the northern province of Ireland. Now, calling it a militia is a little misleading. It was an army. Over 100,000 people signed up, and they began importing guns and ammunition into the country and training for combat. If home rule became law, they were going to war. In response, Irish nationalists joined the Irish Volunteers an opposing militia that was formed to defend home rule. Well, of course, I came from a national family where you heard about all the rebellions and all the history of Ireland, and I was very uh, fond of reading history. And then I heard this talk about, particularly about the Fenians, my grandfathers and these who belonged to the Fenians, and uh, so I was very well versed in it, and I was really anxious for the day to come when I could help myself. In 1913, when Michael was just 11, three of his brothers signed up to become members of the Irish Volunteers. In his memoir, he says that while he was too young to join, he'd never miss a drill or a parade. The older men would gather in the evenings and on Sundays, and Michael would watch them march from one village onto the next, and dream about the day that he could join them. The biggest challenge for the Volunteers wasn't finding people who were willing to fight. It was finding guns. In his memoir, Flannery spends an incredible amount of time detailing various gun-running schemes during this period, most notably from supporters in the United States. It's a curious fixation since he was a child at the time, and for a man who's always circumspect about describing his own involvement in gun-running, the many pages he devotes to the actions of others reads as a sort of screen or cipher for describing his own activities so many decades later. In any case, in 1914, it really seemed like there was going to be a major confrontation between the Ulster Volunteers and the Irish Volunteers. But it didn't happen. Instead, men from both organizations ended up joining the same army, the British Army. The First World War was underway, and although the Home Rule Bill was actually passed, it never came into effect. Nationalists were going to have to wait for their chance at self-governance. By the end of April 1916, that waiting came to an end, and the Easter Rising began. A number of allied Republican paramilitary groups seized various government buildings, built barricades, and began attacking British troops across Dublin. The rebels read out a dramatic proclamation announcing that they were forming an Irish Republic that would represent all of the people on the island of Ireland. For many Irish people, this was the birth of the modern Irish nation. Although the Easter Rising was mostly centered in Dublin, the rebellion was meant to spread across the country, and Michael Flannery wanted to be a part of it, even though he was just 14 years old and still living on his family's farm. But the war would come to him. British forces in rural areas had taken to using human shields. To take the old people, or the very young people from the family, and take them out 
riding on their open lorries, and I knew they wouldn't be attacked. But I was in school, and word came in that there was going to be a raid on the school, so the monks just warned us, get out. And uh, I did, and I didn't uh, go back. That was why I didn't continue my education, because I joined the volunteers. Back in Dublin, the rebels were outgunned and totally surrounded by the British Army. They surrendered after just six days of fighting. The top members of the group that had organized it were all executed and became real martyrs for the Republican movement. Although the Rising failed, it put insurrection and the principle of physical force back on the agenda. And in the next few years, the surviving members of the Irish Volunteers reorganized themselves as the Irish Republican Army. They made small guerrilla attacks against the British, gathered up weapons, and started training new recruits. So in 1918, of course, was a sort of turning point. There was a general election in the British Isles, which was England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. So Sinn Féin had been building up during the two years between 16 and 1918. Even though Sinn Féin had stayed out of the Easter Rising, they'd gotten busy afterwards. They were now fielding candidates all across the country in the general election and doing well. Of the 105 seats, Sinn Féin won 73, including Constance Markovitz, the first woman elected to the House of Commons. But instead of taking their seats in the British Parliament, Sinn Féin abstained, and they created their own parliament. They had offices dealing with finance, law, and education. And similarly, the IRA had gone from being a collection of volunteers to the official military of the state. And soon that state began attacking a variety of British military forces on the island. Flannery played a role in that war, mostly in the west of the country. But he wasn't just on the front lines. He also worked as a liaison officer for the new Republican justice system. In small towns across Tipperary, he'd set up courtrooms that would adjudicate local disputes. Mostly stuff about cattle, right-of-ways, and how late the pub could stay open. The banality of these cases makes a pretty striking contrast to the violence he saw while out with his flying column. But his experience here with the law was actually pretty formative. Much later in his life, he'd often have to explain why he felt that the IRA had the right to wage an armed campaign in Ireland. He'd point to the fact that the IRA had been given that right by an independent parliament, elected by a majority of Irish citizens in 1918. And that power had never been revoked. For a man whose life often took him to the edge of the law, or perhaps even beyond it, it's telling that he always maintained this legalistic argument for what he did, and for what the IRA did. In 1921, there was a ceasefire and a general election. Sinn Féin again won a majority and sent delegates to England to negotiate a truce. They came back with an offer from the British state to grant them more independence but not for the entire island. Instead, a border was drawn around six counties that were majority unionist, mostly those Protestants who demanded to remain in the UK and refused to live in a state administered by Catholics. For many people, this offer was like being asked to chop off your own arm. But for many more, it was an acceptable resolution that could end the war and provide a stepping stone to a united Ireland someday in the future. The treaty was signed by delegates from Sinn Féin, but the terms of the agreement were just too much for people like Michael Flannery. He and thousands of anti-treaty Republicans returned to war, now fighting their old comrades from the newly formed Irish Free State. During the Civil War, Flannery was captured relatively quickly. Well, they were just captured. <laughs> were you captured in the middle of a raid or an ambush or just yes, well, were in the wrong house, the wrong place? You were in the wrong house at the wrong time. I spent my uh, 19th and my 20th and my 21st birthday in prison. He was first sent to Mountjoy Prison in Dublin, which was a pretty horrific place. One morning, four men were pulled out of their cells for execution, one from each of the four provinces of Ireland. Flannery had been told by a priest that the executions were about to happen, and he stood up on his bed to see out the window. So I stayed at the window, what 
children and finally the shots rang out and the dust went up. I was really, I don't know, I was just dumbfounded. I couldn't believe that they murdered these men because they had no right, no charges or anything just to come out to make an example of them. And uh, something that I will never, never forget. This execution was one of the darkest moments of the Civil War. One of the men that Flannery witnessed being shot was named Rory O'Connor. The Minister of Justice for the new Irish Free State had personally signed his execution order. O'Connor had been the best man at the minister's wedding just one year before. Flannery spent most of his years in a prison at a military camp in County Kildare. He was released in 1924, and after the war ended, he went back to County Tipperary and worked on behalf of the IRA, but without much success. The war was over, and most people weren't eager to start it up again. And so he left. And like many other people who opposed the treaty, he headed to the United States to contribute what he could from the Irish diaspora. Thousands of of the defeated anti-treaty side leave Ireland. And it's a mixture of leaving it because it's a cold house politically, and also it's a cold house economically. This is Brian Hanley. He's a historian of Irish republicanism. Many of the anti-treatyites came from the west of Ireland, which is very poor anyway, and which sees high levels of emigration throughout the 20s. And a lot of people would have gone to Britain, but a significant number go to the States. And there, again, the IRA find that, you know, they try and maintain contact with people, and they find a lot of these people simply drop out. They go to America, and they don't become involved in politics ever again. But a minority remain active, and people like Flannery then join the Clan na Gael in New York and, and elsewhere. And you've got these Clan na Gael clubs in New York, Boston, Philadelphia, New Jersey, in Holyoke and Massachusetts and, and other places as well, in Chicago. And they're trying to maintain this organization. Flannery immediately becomes an active member of Clan na Gael, an important Irish Republican support group that dates back to the 1860s. He also joined many other Irish cultural groups and got a job with the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company and the actuarial department. It must have been an unbelievable culture shock. He went from walking the quiet back roads of Tipperary to sitting in one of the tallest buildings in the world, the MetLife Tower at the corner of Madison Avenue and 24th Street. The Republican scene in New York was divided along pro and anti-treaty lines, just like in Ireland. But the Depression put that split on the back burner. And by the time of the Great Depression, um, the Clan na Gael are sending the IRA notice saying, you know, we're broke. Most of our members are out of work. Um, so the Clan na Gael clubs are basically functioning as unemployment centres for a lot of um, Irish immigrants who are down in their luck, or sometimes Irish Americans as well. You'll see them functioning in, in very much in a social way for, for Irish Republican immigrants. Weekly meetings and dances. It's a place where people can get together. They're in tune with Irish Republican politics to an extent, but they're also becoming more and more immersed in their lives in America. The Irish who came to the United States after partition encountered a diaspora that was deeply entangled with the social and racial conflicts of their new home. During the Depression, animus and resentment found a place in Irish America. The Catholic priest, Father Charles Coughlin, really exemplified this moment. He ran an organization called the Christian Front, which flirted with fascism and extolled anti-Semitism. Coughlin's resentment at the elites and belief again that, you know, the odds were stacked against the hardworking Irish appealed to a certain niche, particularly in the, the Depression and its aftermath. You know, and, and people are saying the Italians and the Jews are running away with everything in town and we're being left behind. And that kind of sense of, of loss or resentment. You see that expressed by Irish Republicans too, you know, because they've, they've got the anti-Britishness already, but then they kind of feel like we're being isolated and left out. And when Father Coughlin becomes a big phenomenon, a lot of his early uh, Christian front meetings and so on are being, he being held in Irish dance halls, being held in halls where there's always Tipperary County Knights or, or you know, Leash County Knights or Kerry County Knights and so on. So there's a bit of a crossover in the social scene, I think. This nexus of race prejudice, economic pressures, and Irishness forged a great deal of white American-Irish identity, going back all the way to the 1830s. Noel Ignatiev argued in his book, How the Irish Became White, that millions of Irish Catholics who arrived in the United States during the 19th century weren't predestined to even be considered white. They arrived starving on coffin ships, 
presumably with a consciousness or a worldview that would encourage them to have solidarity with other oppressed people. You know, you have this group of people at the bottom rung of the ladder and they find a, a, a way to, to build a location for themselves inside, inside whiteness. This is Robbie McVeigh. He's a historian who's been engaged with Noel Ignatiev's work for decades. They climb the, the ladder, but they do it in a way that creates an increasing distance between themselves and other people who were oppressed by many of the same forces. And so it's that difference between the consciousness which they bring with them and where they end up. To make sense of that increasing distance between Irish people and other oppressed people, we need to look at how that oppression in Ireland began. There's been a colonial presence in Ireland since at least the 12th century, when Norman colonizers settled in parts of eastern Ulster. Over time, land was gradually taken from Catholics and distributed to Protestants and used to create a larger and larger garrison that could protect English interests. The starkest moments are the plantations at the end of the 16th and the, the start of the 17th century when the colonial plantation model is used and it's quite clearly about introducing a, a new form of polity in, uh, in Ireland. So it's not just about subjugation, but also replacing in, in exactly the same way as colonial plantations in Virginia and, and other places where we're doing that. They weren't just about dispossessing Native Americans. They were about replacing that with a form of settler colonialism, which you know con continues in different forms to this day. So it's, it, it's that imprint of colonialism, which is so profound at that point, and which, as I say, continues to the present. And that, that sense of Settler native tension is still here in the, in the, in the, on the streets of Belfast and Derry today. It hasn't gone away. I mean, that's one of the key drivers of the, of the recent conflict was precisely that sense of difference, which has lived on, on both sides in a, in, a, in a real way. In the late 1680s, a small class of Protestant landowners consolidated power and dominated the island. They were called the Ascendancy and excluded all Catholics and even some Protestant denominations, too. During the 1700s, when revolutions are taking place in France and Haiti and the United States, some of those who'd been excluded from the ascendancy, including Presbyterians, began organizing themselves. Not just against the power of the ascendancy, but for the creation of an independent state, separate from the United Kingdom, occupying the entire island of Ireland. This is an important moment where both Protestants and Catholics see themselves represented in the concept of the Irish nation, apart from Britain. For me, one of the most significant contributions that Ireland made, not just to democratic thought, if you like, but also to notions about self-determination and uh, anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism, because although they were in some ways inspired both by the American Revolution and more particularly by the French Revolution. They managed to think themselves into a new space, which is a space where what they want to do is, is replace the divisions that were created between Irish people by colonialism with the common name of Irish person, as, as they phrase it. This is totally different from the anti-imperialism of the American Revolution, where Native Americans, African Americans, and many others aren't granted full access to citizenship. And this idea is still with us, but the movement that gave rise to it ended in defeat. The United Irishmen attempted a rebellion in 1798, and it was put down very quickly. And the British decided that they wouldn't allow the ascendancy to keep ruling the island. So in 1800, Parliament passed the Acts of Union, which joined Ireland with Great Britain, creating the United Kingdom. As Robbie says in his book, they were brought into the mothership, into the heart of empire. And it's catastrophic. Within 45 years, there's widespread starvation that eventually kills over a million people and forces millions more to emigrate. All of this happened within the most powerful state in the world. So in the 1850s, Irish people began to leave Ireland in huge numbers and headed to the United States. They went from a country with one set of oppressive dynamics to another, with its own wholly different set. In the United States, blackness was the badge of the slave. And so white-skinned Irish people entered that system as free labor. Noel Ignatiev wrote that while white skin made the Irish eligible for membership in the white race, it didn't guarantee their admission. They had to earn it. And they did with the help of the Democratic Party machine. In exchange for voting for their pro-slavery candidates, the Democratic Party would distribute jobs to the Irish as dock workers, firefighters, policemen. During this period, Irish people often lived among African-Americans, and nativist mobs would terrorize both groups, and both groups would fight back. 
Although there are plenty of examples of these communities integrating with each other, some Irish Americans realized that one of the ways they could earn the privileges of whiteness was to attack black people, to terrorize them through riots, and so distinguish themselves from their neighbors. As Ignatiev writes in his book, rioters don't merely reflect public opinion, they shape it. Race riots happened in Cincinnati, Philadelphia, and most famously in New York City. In 1863, a draft was instituted to bolster the ranks of the Union Army during the Civil War. A week and a half after the Battle of Gettysburg, there was a drawing of draft numbers in New York. In response, thousands of men, many Irishmen, attacked black people across the city, especially black dock workers that they worked side by side with. When Michael Flannery arrived in New York in the 1920s, the draft riots were within living memory. He arrived at the tail end of a surge of Irish immigration to the United States, and he integrated into the country, bought a house in Queens, and he met and married another Irish immigrant, Margaret Mary Egan, who was called Pearl. In the 1950s, he remained committed to many different organizations and continued to support the armed struggle. In 1956, the IRA launched a guerrilla offensive called the Border Campaign. The plan was for small units to attack British targets in the north and then slip back across the border into the Republic of Ireland. They decide then to have this campaign and they spend several years building for it. But again, they're looking at support in America in terms of money and in terms, ultimately, of arms. And they want money raised for prisoners. They want the publicity of pickets again on the British consulate and so on. And hopefully Americans to be informed that there's a, a campaign taking place. A supportive social base for an armed campaign just wasn't there. But the IRA pushed it along for six years, until 1962. You have to imagine that this was a pretty difficult period for Flannery. He'd been in the United States for 30 years, and a united Ireland is impossible to imagine. He walks the picket lines, collects the spare change, but there's very little support for the border campaign in Ireland, and even less in America. It's hard to envision from this low point, but in just a few years, all of this would be reversed. In 1968, he retired from MetLife, just as a new social movement in Northern Ireland was about to upend decades of stagnation. Michael Flannery was about to find himself back in the fight. This is the city of Derry. Its population of 55,000 makes it the second largest in Northern Ireland. In 1964, RTE, Ireland's state television broadcaster, filmed a prescient documentary about the city of Derry. The documentary explored how Catholics were disenfranchised in Northern Ireland. In Derry, for example, even though there was a clear Catholic majority, the voting districts had been drawn to ensure that Unionists would always have greater representation in local government. On top of this, Unionists built ideological and repressive structures that stretched from Stormont, the Parliament of Northern Ireland, into the homes of every citizen. Catholics were considered an internal enemy, that could only be subordinated through political and economic exclusion. In Derry today, over 80% of salaried employees are Protestant. Catholics are only employed in the more menial jobs and never in the Guildhall. In Altnagelvin, Derry's bright new hospital, 21 out of the 25 doctors are Protestant. It's said that two of the four Catholics were selected by mistake. They have Protestant-sounding names. After jobs, the other area where control of votes is important is in housing. Owning property was a requirement to cast a vote. So the fact that there was widespread housing discrimination against Catholics also meant widespread voting discrimination. There was very little that could be done within the existing system to even the playing field. The parliament at Stormont was wholly dominated by unionists. Is there any redress for gerrymandering, uh, say, in local electoral areas? I think not, because uh, we have tried this. We've even lowered ourselves to a petition to the Privy Council in England, and uh, we had the strange phenomenon that the matter was referred back to the guilty parties, the guilty men at Stormont them themselves. I'm afraid that there is no normal redress for this problem, that it will take a blast of public inquiry and of, uh, and of informed public opinion in order to sweep away this rotten system. The state was incapable of reform. The traditional structures of power couldn't perpetuate themselves any longer. Reform had to come, even if politicians and stormen were unwilling to grant it. 
1967, NICRA, the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association, was founded. It consists of communists, trade unionists, traditional nationalists. This is Melissa Baird, a doctoral student who studies the links between civil rights organizations in Northern Ireland and the U.S. It's a non-sectarian organization to begin with, um, so there is um, kind of some intake from liberal Protestants as well. And it kind of tries to bolster its credentials as this isn't a, a religious movement, this is a non-sectarian civil rights movement. But it disavows itself from the political structure, the political system, so it, it won't give any endorsements to political parties and in that way tries to kind of step itself outside of nationalist versus unionist politics in Northern Ireland. The Civil Rights Association squared off against a state that had granted itself extraordinary powers, far beyond that of a normally operating democracy. It was authoritarian to the core. The most controversial power was internment. The government at Stormont could authorize the police to arrest and detain people without trial indefinitely. And they invoked this in 1971. Good evening. Heavy fighting is reported raging tonight in Belfast, Northern Ireland. At least nine persons are dead in the day's fighting between Protestants and Roman Catholics. During the day, there was open warfare in the streets of Londonderry, Belfast, and Newry after Prime Minister Brian Faulkner ordered terrorists jailed without trial. Although that clip from CBS makes it sound like a routine counter-terrorist action, there was no greater evidence of the undemocratic nature of the state than internment. This was a key moment in the early days of the Troubles that galvanized the civil rights movement. Of course, there was no lack of inspiration for political activists of the era. It seemed like revolution was in the air in almost every country. But the activists in Northern Ireland focused on one place, one example in particular, the black freedom struggle in the U.S. The famous marches and speeches were being beamed directly into their homes on television. The civil rights movement in Northern Ireland has kind of the visual aspects of what it looks like to be a non-violent protest movement, but they don't have that same intellectual or philosophical attachment to it. In Northern Ireland, at least, they didn't go through the training process and the kind of intellectual um, understanding of what it means to be a non-violent movement. The links between Northern Ireland and the black freedom struggle eventually went beyond just the televisual. Another activist group, People's Democracy, was consciously modeled on the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. SNCC, as it was often called, was a major civil rights group that pioneered tactics like sit-ins and boycotts that targeted whites-only businesses in the United States. Many Irish Americans had an ambiguous relationship with the civil rights movement in both countries. They were suspicious of calls for black liberation, and they were suspicious of making civil rights in the six counties an organizing principle. Before NICRA was formed, the only organizations operating in the United States that had any interest in what was going on in Northern Ireland were Republican and Nationalist. Their field of vision, the terrain of struggle as they understood it, was simply about the border, not civil rights. They wanted to destroy the state, not to reform it. Clan Nagel, the old Republican support group that Michael Flannery was a part of, was eventually convinced to support NICRA. But during a St. Patrick's Day parade, they insisted on carrying a banner that made it clear that they supported civil rights in Ireland, but not black civil rights in the United States. In later years, this position was embodied by Louise Day Hicks. She was a lawyer who later became a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from Massachusetts. She made her name by vigorously, maybe even viciously, attacking any attempts to desegregate the Boston public school system. She was supported by Irish Americans from places like South Boston, Southie. And they were often the same people who were loud supporters of Irish independence. There's a, a documentary called Southie, which is shown on, on Irish television in the 70s. And there's graffiti, IRA and so on, next to anti-busing graffiti and racist graffiti. Basically, Irish rebel songs and that idea of rebelling against the British could be used to rebel against the, you know, the Boston establishment as well. You could see it as the same type of, of anger, you know, and chant IRA, you know, when you were out rioting against busing and so on. Irish nationalism in the United States could be used for explicitly white supremacist ends. It still is. In 2022, during the Boston St. Patrick's Day parade, a neo-Nazi group marched around the sidelines with a Keep Boston Irish banner. For civil rights activists in Ireland, the reference here is exactly inverted. They often look to the black freedom struggle for inspiration, 
and guidance. Nyker had been building power through large marches, and by 1969, they were regularly attracting thousands of people. And that power was beginning to have an effect, not just on the Northern Irish state, but also on the Republican movement. A crisis had opened up within Republicanism. Following the failures of the border campaign, the IRA seemed to have no coherent response to what was going on. There wasn't a clear military or political solution that they could offer. Back in New York, Michael Flannery had been following the developments and joined two groups that sprung up to support the movement. The first was called the American Congress for Irish Freedom. James Heaney is the driving force of the national organization, and Michael Flannery is the New York City chapter leader. Heaney's ideological position was very conservative, which would have suited Flannery. And they built a network of over 20 chapters across the country. But they mostly focused on letter-writing campaigns and weren't interested in anything aggressive like street protests. Heaney also made it particularly clear that the group would only support nonviolence, which Michael Flannery would have argued against. Eventually, he drifted away from the group and started up his own. He starts this group, the Irish Action Committee, which doesn't really do very much um, for a long time. It seems to be more of a neighborhood organization. Um, and at this point, different neighborhood organizations spring up across New York and they quickly affiliate with the National Association for Irish Justice. The NAIJ was really the work of Brian Herron, an Irish immigrant who was the grandson of James Connolly, a socialist and leader of the 1916 rebellion. Herron carried on that left-wing legacy, and he was involved in the farm workers' strike in California. He was friends with Eldridge Cleaver and worked with the Congress for Racial Equality. The NAIJ was all about confrontation. It pickets the British consulate a lot. It pickets different um, promotional campaigns that for British goods as well. But it soon becomes clear that the presence of that kind of left-wing faction is problematic, especially for people like Michael Flannery. Meanwhile, in Ireland, the violence was ticking up. Not just rock-throwing and street fighting, but now loyalists were planting bombs targeting infrastructure across the six counties. Catholics were being burnt out of their homes by loyalist mobs who were tossing petrol bombs through their windows. At the beginning of January 1969, the civil rights group People's Democracy organized a four-day march from Belfast to Derry. It's about 70 miles. It had been modeled on the Selma to Montgomery march led by Martin Luther King four years earlier in 1965. On the final day, a loyalist mob attacked the marchers with sticks, iron bars, bottles, and stones. On-duty police officers watched it all happen, and off-duty police officers joined in the attack. In August, there were three days of riots in Derry. More families were burnt out of their homes, and British troops were deployed to the streets. The army had arrived, and the war was on the way. Bernadette Devlin McCalliskey was a young leader of the group People's Democracy. She quickly became one of the most prominent figures of the civil rights movement in Northern Ireland and even became an MP in the British Parliament. After the riots in Derry, she was hustled out of the country to go on a fundraising tour of North America. She ended up being the object of a tug of war between the NAIJ and more conservative groups. But it seems like the biggest surprise for her was how many Irish Americans couldn't connect the struggle in Northern Ireland to that in the United States. Here's how she described it on WGBH in 1979, when she was on a trip to Boston, which was in the middle of violent busing protests. The Irish American community became too involved in our struggle against oppression. It might raise some questions as to the contradictions within their own body politic in America. Uh, particularly here in, in Boston, uh, there is nothing sadder to people struggling against oppression in Ireland, to look towards Boston City and see our people being used to oppress the black people of this city. People tell me I don't understand the situation. They tell me blacks are lazy, they don't want to work, they want to lower the standard of education. In fact, they tell me all the things I was brought up to hear about myself, things Protestant people said about Catholic people in Belfast. 
There were, of course, many Irish Americans who made a positive connection between Black and Catholic civil rights struggles. But often people who were organizing as Irish nationalists refused to follow that line of reasoning. In fact, in 1972, Michael Flannery himself said he only had limited sympathy for Black Americans' political demands. He felt there was already freedom in America, and that many Black activists had, quote, placed themselves above the law of the land. It's a surprising accusation from someone who refused to acknowledge the law of the land in the country of his birth. In December 1969, Flannery had reached an impasse with both the American Congress for Irish Freedom and the National Association for Irish Justice. He was always guided by a deeply held belief that only physical force could bring an end to British rule in Ireland. So he flew across the Atlantic to meet with IRA members about the situation and see what he could do to help. He arrived at a crisis moment for the organization. The fault lines around how to respond to the civil rights campaign and loyalist attacks on Catholics finally split the organization. A group mostly centered around rural, southern, and more conservative figures walked out and started a new group. These were the men who founded the Provisional IRA and would go on to become the most infamous paramilitary group during the Troubles. Flannery met with the men who would lead this group just before the split was formalized. And in early 1970, two of those provisional leaders, Dahi O'Connell and Joe Cahill, who we met in episode one, flew to America to ask him to lead a fundraising group to support their new organization. This was the call that Flannery had been waiting for. In April, he held a press conference, and alongside him were John McGowan and Jack McCarthy, two other old IRA vets. They announced the formation of a new group, the Irish Northern Aid Committee. It was going to be a relief organization for people who'd been burnt out of their homes or had family members who'd been imprisoned. And they're asking for clothes. They're asking for, essentially, you know, a, a community that's under siege. And ultimately then that becomes, you know, money and aid for prisoners and so on as well. But it's very much in its early stages, a very public expression of Irish republicanism, certainly, but Irish patriotism even more generally. From the jump, Irish Northern Aid was more successful than they were prepared for. We were getting chapters formed in different places, towns we never heard of, and we were always asked, send a representative. We just didn't have enough representatives to send. Anywhere from San Francisco to New York or Florida to Maine. This is Martin Lyons, who was a generation younger than Flannery. He'd fought in the border campaign for the IRA and came to New York in 1960. He worked as a plumber in the Bronx and was the man that Brendan Hughes had approached for Armalites in episode one. I was the first chairman of Northern Aid. It wasn't democratic. The local chapters could elect among themselves, you know, uh, so-and-so is going to be a chairperson. At the top level, there was what was known as the inner circle. The inner circle was like an inside government that ran the whole thing, you know? The model worked. They collected cash in Irish bars and got checks from people across the country for 10 or $20. In 1972, they started publishing a newspaper of their own called The Irish People, and every issue was loaded with appeals for donations. The money they raised would then get sent to Ireland, usually via money orders, and arrive at the offices of the Northern Aid Committee of Belfast, and then the Green Cross, and then later a group called Uncommon Cark. This segment from CBS is just one of many that looked at Norate's finances in the mid-1970s. Dublin, Wednesday night. The weekly meeting of Uncommon Cark, the Republican Aid Committee. It is the receiving body for most of the contributions from the United States, channeled through Northern Aid. Committee leaders say they are receiving about $500,000 a year. That's twice the figure admitted to by Northern Aid officials in New York. The man named on the money orders was Joe Cahill, the provisional leader that had met with Flannery and was central to the gun-running operation we looked at in episode one. Cahill says the committee spends about $15,000 a week in relief work money for the dependents of over a thousand IRA prisoners, transportation for family visits to various prisons in Ireland and England, and basic needs of the prisoners such as clothing, cigarettes, and materials for handicrafts. Norid was good at fundraising, but they had to walk a fine line. 
This was their position. We believe in the right of the IRA to act with physical force in Northern Ireland, but our organization raises money to support families and prisoners, not the IRA itself. If some of that money ends up going to military ends, well, we can't control that, and we don't mind it either. Despite that, or perhaps because of it, Norid became the default home for people who were supportive of the armed campaign. And even if they weren't raising money for guns, Americans who wanted to send money for that purpose sometimes sought out Norid to facilitate that donation. Their grassroots model was effective, but Michael Flannery's personal story was central to their success. He'd been in and around Irish Republican groups for decades and had the distinction of having fought with the IRA in the legendary battles of the 1920s. For people like Martin Lyons, this was all about having a figurehead. We took the older men from the 20s who had gained tremendous respectability among the Irish communities in New York and Chicago and California and everywhere else. And we put them out front and behind them were younger people with a new ideology, but it worked very well. Who knew Martin Lyons uh, that long ago? Nobody, but they knew Jack McCarthy or John McGowan or Matt Higgins. And they all knew Michael Flannery. And like Flannery, these older men all believed that the armed struggle was the tactic that was going to remove British administration on the island of Ireland. They were also pretty conservative, although the provost sometimes flirted with Marxism. We didn't want... Uh, our group, the Northern Aid, to be classed in as, uh, uh, they used to call them pinkos in the old days, as a bunch of pinkos. There was open conflict between Norid and other left-wing organizations. It was a battle for hegemony within militant Irish republicanism, with a whole slate of groups attempting to dominate all the others. Norid positioned themselves against the National Association for Irish Justice because of their connections with the Black Panthers, Students for a Democratic Society, and other radical groups of the American New Left. Next, the American Congress for Irish Freedom collapsed, and Norid scooped up a lot of their members in organizing capacity. At a rally outside of Madison Square Garden, people from Norid physically attacked members of the local Irish Republican Club, which was associated with the left-wing official rump of the IRA. This conservative stance even applied to the IRA itself. When volunteers came to the United States on fundraising tours, they were explicitly told not to use the word socialism and to stick to more religious appeals. Flannery and the other leaders of Irish Northern Aid clearly believed that Irish America was not ready to hear about the Marxist influences within the provisionals. In 1975, the Irish People newspaper had a front page describing the provisionals as a wedge against communism. Nonetheless, Michael Flannery sometimes showed a willingness to work with people across the political spectrum. In the 1980s, Irish Northern Aid supported the campaign of David Dinkins, who became the first black mayor of New York. And they also supported Jesse Jackson for president. They felt that both men just had the strongest policies on Ireland. Michael Flannery was a conservative person. He held some reactionary views that would have been fairly common among Irish Americans of his generation. But he was an Irish Republican above all else, an advocate for the armed struggle. And he was willing to work with pretty much anyone who wanted to lend a hand in that cause. And the opportunity for armed struggle was about to arrive. This segment led the NBC Nightly News on January 30th, 1972. Good evening. If you were a Catholic in Northern Ireland today, this is a date you would not forget. For amid so many days of violence and death, today was one of the worst. In Londonderry, at least 13 people, civilians, were killed, shot to death by British soldiers. These were the first reports on American television about Bloody Sunday. The marchers numbered between 15 and 20,000. It was a massive display of solidarity, expressing the almost total alienation of the people of this part of Derry. At around four o'clock in the afternoon, the first battalion of the British Army's paratroop regiment opened fire on the demonstration as they headed toward the Guildhall. Forty minutes later, 26 people had been shot by the paratroopers. Fourteen died, and none of them were armed. The event received global coverage. American TV channels ran nightly reports for a week after the march. The killings were widely denounced, despite the British government's insistence that the paratroopers had been under attack. In 2010, after an official inquiry, the British Prime Minister, David Cameron, 
issued a public apology. There is no doubt, there is nothing equivocal, there are no ambiguities. What happened on Bloody Sunday was both unjustified and unjustifiable. It was wrong. Bloody Sunday was the end of the civil rights movement in Northern Ireland. The state would not be reformed by peaceful marching. Instead, young men and women joined the IRA in droves. This is how 1972 began, and by the time it ended, 479 people would be killed. It was the deadliest year of the Troubles. Bloody Sunday changed everything for Ireland, the IRA, for Norid, and for Michael Flannery. In his telling, his life culminated in the Irish Northern Aid Committee. And so their fortunes were the same. It might have seemed to an outsider like Flannery had come out of nowhere onto the national scene, but his entire life was structured by unbelievable changes in Irish and American society. From the revolution against British rule, immigration to the United States, through hardening racial identities and conflicting political commitments, Flannery lived through it all. In some ways, Irish Northern Aid and the Troubles was only the last unexpected chapter. In the six months after Bloody Sunday, Norrie brought in over two million in today's dollars. John Lennon showed up at their rallies and volunteers poured in across the country. Many of their organizational competitors had been sidelined by this point, and Norrie had an almost hegemonic position within militant Irish Republicanism in the United States. By the mid-1970s, if you supported the armed struggle, you almost certainly supported Norrie. Their explosive growth would sustain them for a decade, with smaller surges following a predictable pattern. Every time British troops committed an atrocity, Irish Northern Aid would invariably see a spike in donations. The British military was creating its own enemy. But Norade's enemies were about to multiply. In the next episode, the U.S. Department of Justice cranks up the pressure. The British and Irish governments make their own moves, and the Irish Northern Aid Committee is forced to fight against a group of powerful Irish Americans who used to have their back. This podcast is called Foreign Agent. It was created by me, Nate Levy, and my co-producer, Michael McCann. It's distributed by Navarra Media. Music is by Matt Huxley, with additional music in this episode by Jamie Weiss. The interviews recorded with Michael Flannery and Martin Lyons are courtesy of the Tamament Library at New York University. We'd like to thank Robert Collins, who was incredibly helpful in the research for this episode. Robert's book, Norraid and the Northern Ireland Troubles, 1970 to 1994, is out soon from Four Courts Press. In researching this episode, we relied heavily on the following books, Irish America and the Ulster Conflict by Andrew Wilson, The Provisional IRA by Tommy McKearney, Ireland, Colonialism, and the Unfinished Revolution by Robbie McVeigh and Bill Ralston, Had the Irish Became White by Nolik Natiev, Black and Green by Brian Dooley, and Enemies and Passing Friends by Pamela Clayton. We also depended on two academic articles by Brian Hanley, Irish Republicans in Interwar New York, and the Politics of Norway.